0: Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the LSE and to the old theater for this year's uh, Robbins, Lionel Robbins lectures. We're very happy to be here and to host. Uh, closer to the mic, please. To host Raghurajan as our speaker. Maybe this one. I
1: don't
0: know which of the mics is working. Three mics. I'm speaking close to all three of them. the mics no okay so welcome everyone thank you to thank you for being here at the for the annual Lionel Robbins lectures um, I'm Ricardo Reese I'm uh, the AW Phillips professor of economics here in the economics department and it's my great honor to be hosting you for this uh, great event our guest tonight Rav Rajan has actually spoken at the stage I think quite a few times by now or three or four times as is very fitting for someone who has had a very distinguished career both in academic and policy circles all of which driven by the LSE's motto of understanding the causes of things. Ragu is a professor of finance at the Chicago Booth School where he's been on the faculty for many years, since I think 1990 or 1991. Um, And during his academic career, he was an expert, if not perhaps the leading expert in the world, in understanding what role banks play in our economy, how corporate finance choices of firms, Uh, between say having more bank debt or other forms of financing affect their choices and especially notably an understanding how these choices interact in developing countries where banks are dominant and governance is often weaker this distinguished academic work was rewarded with the Fisher Black Prize for the best finance researcher under the age of 40 which Raghu earned in 2003 as well as with more recently serving, being elected to serve as president of the American Fine Association in 2011, and with being a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Now, while in academia, Rago distinguished himself by showing a great inclination and aptitude to engage in public debate through popular interest books. His book, Saving Capitalists from the Capitalists, in 2003, written with Luigi Zingales, is a book that I still have in my shelf, which had a very deep influence in my thinking, in that it was a very remarkable, impressive book on how often the great enemies of capitalism are the capitalists themselves in their pursuit of rents, of monopoly power, and of oligopolies. Things that Ragu at the time, in his applications, had in mind developing countries, but which have become very relevant to developed countries today. I strongly recommend you to read Saving Capitalists from the Capitalists. After that, he followed that in 2010 with the book Fault Lines, How Hidden fractures threaten the World Economy, which was one of the very first full coherent accounts of the financial crisis, and how it spread across borders, and especially from financial markets to real outcomes. More recently, he's wrote The Third Pillar, How the State and Markets Are Leaving Communities Behind, on the interaction between state, markets, and the third pillar, our communities, which he argues are crucial for empowerment and effective decision making. Ravi will not be talking about these books today, this is an academic lecture he will be talking about his first hat as an academic understanding <coughs> bank debt, liquidity, and how we think about interaction between financial and real markets. But he speaks at this, he will speak at this topic, not just from his very distinguished academic research, but also from his experience as a very successful policymaker. Between 2003 and 2006, he was a chief economist and director of research at the International Monetary Fund. And more recently, he was the 23rd governor of the Reserve Bank of India between 2013 and 2016 embracing what was a huge challenge at a time of great national need. Many central banks had to deal with the crisis, very few accepted to walk into the heart of the crisis, and Raghu is one of those and deserves our admiration for his courage. We are here tonight for the Lionel Robbins Lecture. Uh, like Raghu, Lionel Robbins was an outstanding man of his time, in a academic engagement as a professor at the LSE for more than 30 years, and as a public servant, serving as director of the economic section of the War Cabinet during World War II, as well as one of the designers of the Bretton Woods Agreement that led to the establishment of the IMF and the World Bank. Lectures were established for the first time in 1924. They take a each year, hosted by the Center for Economic Performance and by the Economic Department. And they're a major event in the life of the school. It's an honor to be here, uh, featuring many eminent many economists, more recently Angus Deaton, Ross Shetty, or Jeff Sachs. For us, it was clear that Rago was a very perfect guest to honor Lionel Robbins and to engage in what we expect to be a very fruitful academic discussion, and we are very honored they will be here today. Um, he will speak for approximately one hour. We will then do a Q&A with you for about 30 minutes, after which, there will be a drinks reception at the end. With that, further ado, I welcome Rago to the stage to tell us about banks, and liquidity, and leverage. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Ricardo. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at the London School of Economics. And, of course, uh, Lionel Robbins is, uh, was one of my, uh, the first people I encountered when I started reading economics, and all of us had to memorize his definition of economics. We used to memorize this stuff in, in school. Economics is a science which studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means, which have alternative uses. I don't. I don't know how many times I had to read that <laughs> and answer questions about that in 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 uh, my early life. Um, it's. Uh, uh, Lyon Robbins had great connections uh, with the quote-unquote real world and uh, moved in and out of um, of both uh, economics and policy making. But he also was very open to a variety of influences, being both a, a Keynesian as well as a free market economist. He, he hired Hayek into the London School of Economics, for example, uh, amongst his, uh, his many contributions to economics. What I want to do today is, uh, is talk a little bit uh, about, um, uh, once I find my presentation, uh, that's great, great. Um, so, uh, what I want to talk about is is really why do we have banks and uh, you know the banks are a really complicated institution and often very problematic. Uh, banks have illiquid financial assets, uh, unlike money market mutual funds which have liquid marketable securities, and they're often funded by demandable well that's By definition, banks are funded by demandable liabilities, unlike finance companies. And and the question is, why do we have this troublesome institution? Because they're prone to runs. And again and and again, when we have um, events like the global financial crisis, a whole bunch of people come up and say, why do we have banks anymore? Let's just do away with them. Let's have narrow banks, which essentially are money market mutual funds, or let's have finance companies, but let's get rid of this combination of long-term illiquid assets financed by short-term liabilities. And of course, when people say this, they also say, you know, banks are because we have some aberration in policy. Uh, Some people argue we have banks which are highly levered because we have a tax advantage to debt. Of course, a tax advantage to debt doesn't necessarily mean you should take short-term demandable debt. Any kind of debt would work. Something (coughs) forces banks to issue short-term demandable debt on their liability side. Some people argue, well, it's because of deposit insurance that gives a benefit. But a lot of short-term liabilities of banks are not insured. They, in fact, quite runnable, as we saw during the crisis, as hedge funds withdrew their deposits at banks when they got worried about the risk of their failure and that brought down some some institutions. And of course sometimes we say we have banks only because they enjoy the benefit from society of being anointed as too big to fail. Everybody knows that you put your ma- money in Bank of America or Citibank, uh, the government is not going to let them go under and therefore uh, you know, people put their money in there because they know it's, it's protected by too big to fail. But of course People invest in a whole lot of banking institutions which are not too big to fail. How come they also survive in this world? So this question is obviously very important because again and again, commissions come up with with the question, why do we need banks? And often they propose uh, to de-risk banking, sometimes by eliminating banking entirely. Uh, Some argue we still need the banks which offer demandable deposits, but let's raise bank capital, and how much do we raise it? Well, the sky's the limit. Let's keep raising it because they're, uh, they make banks safer. And of course, if we argue from uh, a Modigliani-Miller perspective that some of you, you, some of you may, must have encountered Modigliani-Miller in, 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 in school, uh, essentially saying that capital structure doesn't matter, well, if you argue from that perspective, then you can raise bank capital right to the limit Uh, essentially convert a bank into a finance company and it shouldn't matter at all, Uh, maybe we should go there if we don't think banks provide a useful uh, function. So there is a very real question, why do we have banks and what are the consequences if we do eliminate them? And I would argue that much regulation is done without a clear theory of why banks exist. Usually banks exist because of some local arbitrage uh, that is created by policy, but in fact banks have uh, existed since maybe the time of Hammurabi and so was that arbitrage present even then was there a tax advantage to debt under Hammurabi's regime i think not so so there really is this question and this talk will be based on two papers one with uh, the first both with Doug Diamond the first in the journal of political economy and the second in the journal of finance So what's the basic idea? And then I want to walk you through the details of a model and then talk about some of the implications of this. The basic idea is that you need specific skills, both in entrepreneurship. If you start a project, the entrepreneur has specific skills, basically brings his ideas to the project. But you also need skills in loan monitoring and collection. You get to know uh, uh, what the borrower is doing. You you get to know how to dispose of the collateral, how to sell the collateral in the best places. Uh, You can collect uh, from the borrower. So uh, in this, uh, first the notion of specific skills, and then the second notion that essentially whenever you have financials, Uh, lending money to an entrepreneur, you can't trust them beyond a certain point. You have to exercise some of these specific uh, skills in collection. All this we owe to Hart and Moore's uh, uh, seminal paper in 1994. So we have uh, one difficulty in lending to entrepreneurs by financiers because entrepreneurs have specific skills that financiers don't have. Which means that entrepreneurs can collect a rent For their specific abilities. That's part one. Part two is the financial themselves, uh, let me say himself just for uh, brevity, the financial himself has to borrow from investors. And investors in lending to the financial have the same problem that the financial has in lending to the entrepreneur. The financial has specific collection skills and it's very hard for investors to trust that the financial will deploy those collection skills uh, on their behalf. So how do we solve these problems? Hart and Moore have this wonderful sense that you know, when an entrepreneur borrows, uh, there's an asset that is created, an asset that is redeployable and can be put to other users with other people, and that becomes the way, collateral becomes the way that you can collect from the entrepreneur. Um, that allows the entrepreneur to commit to pay a, a certain amount to the, uh, to the financier, but not the full amount that they generate. That wedge between the full amount the entrepreneur generates and what they can pay the financier is a rent that the financier absorbs and is a measure of the illiquidity of the real asset. Real assets are liquid because the financier generates rents which are not passed on. And we'll, we'll walk over all this. I'm just giving you a quick overview. Now, that does leave the question, uh, the financier can threaten to collect the asset the entrepreneur has created, the, the machinery, the tools, etc., that the firm has as a way of extracting repayment from the entrepreneur. What's to keep the financier, however, on the straight and narrow vis-a-vis his his lenders, because lenders are typically arms lenders, small depositors, who have really no specific ability to seize the asset, seize the loan to the entrepreneur and do something with it. They really don't know what to do with, with that. But it turns out there is a very neat device by which they can impose an enormous threat on the entrepreneur, by which the entrepreneur, sorry, an enormous threat on the financier, by which the financier has to repay. And that is by holding demandable deposits. Oops, what did I do now? Uh, demandable debt commits the financier to repay small arm's length investors. And in that way, the financier can commit to pass on everything he's collected down back to the depositor. Essentially, why does this work? Because the depositors, as soon as they know that the financier will not repay them, run on the financier, and essentially collapse his rents to zero. We'll see that in, in just a moment. And that proves to be a very significant disciplinary device on the, on the financier, which then means that whatever the financier commits to pay depositors is exactly what he pays, for he fears if he reneges on that deposit, he essentially precipitates his own downfall. So the demandable deposit works very well in committing the financier to repay anything he's borrowed. That makes his claim very liquid, any claim he issues very liquid, which makes him able to raise full money against the asset he has, which is the loans to the firm. So demandable deposits are a way of liquefying the financial assets that the financier holds so there still leaves a, a question in this. Why can't demandable debt force the entrepreneur to pay investors directly? Why don't we see companies issuing demandable debt? Why do we see only banks issuing depart- demandable debt? This is where you will pay attention to the lecture and understand why that doesn't work. But the financial issuing demandable debt works. So, so it, this then uh, identifies the special nature of the banking intermediary, when does the banking intermediary work, and why is a banking intermediary different, for example, from a venture capitalist fund and funds like that? So that's that's where we're going. So here is the first step in the. Uh, I think I skipped. Okay, here's the first step in the in the paper. Uh, we have an entrepreneur who has an idea, wants to invest in that idea. And that idea is going to generate cash flows. Let's to keep things really simple. Say, you invest at date zero, cash flows are produced in two periods. It's a cash flow, which is C2. Now, following Hart and Moore, any time after borrowing and investing, the entrepreneur can threaten to quit before the cash flows are produced, unless the terms of financing are renegotiated. Okay? Now, only the entrepreneur can produce this cash flow of C2 the, nobody else can produce it. Think of it as unique, specific capabilities of the entrepreneur. So, if the entrepreneur quits and the assets are not liquidated, then no cash flows generated. This gives the entrepreneur some amount of market power, right? They're the only guys who can generate this cash flow. Now, the entrepreneur is the first best manager of the, of the asset, uh, uh, is the first best manager of the project, um, but it is illiquid. Um, uh, I'm sorry uh, 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 there seems to be okay there should be a uh, okay this is what I was looking for sorry (laughs) Um, so this is the project Uh, the project generates cash flow C2 and that goes to the entrepreneur. Now the entrepreneur has built this project right? See that factory smoking away? That's an asset and that has value X2. Let's say that's the liquidation value of the asset. So the, the financier, when he lends to the entrepreneur, knows he can't do all the funny, all, all the interesting stuff the entrepreneur is doing. He can't manage the firm. But what he can do is take the buildings and the land and sell it elsewhere. And he'll get X2 when he sells it, where X2 is less than C2. Okay. So what this means is that the entrepreneur can generate C2 but he can only borrow X2, which is less than C2. That means the project is illiquid because whatever it generates, you can borrow only a fraction of it, X2. Uh, Which means from a societal perspective, the project may not get financed because the financier has the money, the entrepreneur has the project, the financier may not finance the project if, if X2 is less than that $1, of, one, one pound of investment that has to be put up front to generate the C2. Okay? So the project may not get financed at all if X2 is relatively low. That's the illiquidity of the real project. It has some consequences in the sense of making the project hard to finance. Now, the financier can lend to the project, the financial member can collect X2 from the project, and he collects that X2 because he has specific knowledge. He knows who needs this kind of building, who needs this kind of land, and so if he seizes the land and buildings, he knows where to sell it to. So he can generate a full X2 from the project. However, the investors who lend to him are much less capable at redeploying the collateral anywhere else. They can collect only beta X2 where beta is less than 1. In fact, beta can be 0. Think of, you know, if you, uh, you know, ran on the bank and somebody gave you a piece of building, where would you sell it? You, you have no idea how to go about it. In fact, the cost of selling it may be greater than the piece of building that you have. So in general, um, uh, the financier uh, has a problem vis-a-vis arm's length investors because they can, ex- can collect only beta X2 from him but he generates X2. So when he wants to borrow from those investors, he can borrow only uh, beta X2, which means that the problem is even worse than we thought. The financier can pass on a loan of X2 to the entrepreneur, but since the financier can borrow only beta X2, that's only how much he can raise from the markets. He needs to have his own money of at least one minus beta X2 to provide that X2 to the uh, to the entrepreneur. So what we have right here is this sequence. You have the project, generates C2 to the entrepreneur. Entrepreneur can borrow X2 from the financier. The financier can borrow beta X2 from the other set of financiers. In other words, there's a wedge each step of the way. Where does that wedge come from? It comes from the specific human capital that each one has that they cannot commit to pass on because the others can collect only a fraction of that specific human capital. Put differently, the entrepreneur collects a rent of C2 minus X2, which allows him to borrow only less than the total value he generates. And this may be a problem for society. Similarly, the financier collects a rent of 1 minus beta times X2, which is also a problem because he can borrow only beta, beta X2 from other financiers. Okay? So far, so simple. So what's the problem? Well, if the financier has no money, the project will now not get financed if beta X2 is less than 1. Alternatively, he could have money, but remember, because he doesn't see the full value C2 coming from the project, he has an excessive incentive to liquidate the project. If, for example, he has new investment opportunities which pay more than, uh, um, uh, more than one but less than C2 divided by X2, he has an incentive that when that investment opportunity shows up to take his money out of the project and reinvest it, to liquidate the project and reinvest it elsewhere. And that's because the, the entrepreneur cannot promise him the full cash flows that he's generating, that wedge makes it really problematic when there are other investment opportunities in the in the economy. This project will tend to get liquidated all too often. So if the project loan is repayable on demand, the financial liquidates the project and takes his money and invests elsewhere. If not repayable on demand, he may actually sell the project Uh, to arms-length investors for Beta x to take that money and invest it elsewhere, but knowing that he's not going to collect the full value up front, he demands a premium for the lost opportunity to invest, and this is uh, the premium for being illiquid that he will demand. All this suggests that there are lots of wedges along the way in financial intermediation, and these wedges create a problem because it prevents the full flow of funds to that project. Ideally, you should fund that project where, whenever C2 is greater than the cost of investment. I'm assuming zero interest rates in this economy. C2 is greater than the cost of investment. It should always be funded, but it gets funded only, uh, in some sense, if beta X2 is 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 greater than 1, uh, and, and that means a bunch of projects are not funded. So, um, how do you change this uh, how do you make it possible for the financier to essentially pass on whatever he can collect from investors uh, allowing him to borrow X2 from investors and avoiding the costs of financial illiquidity. Remember that the financial costs of financial illiquidity in fact are passed on to the entrepreneur in terms of lower funding or lower lending to the entrepreneur. So to do this, the uh, Financial has to promise to repay investors x two and commit not to ever try and renegotiate the payment down when it times, comes time to collect from the entrepreneur in a sense he has to staple his collection abilities to the loan and say when I issue uh, you know, uh, uh, it, when I issue claims against this loan, it comes with my collection abilities. I have specific collection abilities which are better than the Uh, what anybody else can bring to the table, but I promise you I will honor this loan and collect it from the entrepreneur, and I'll pass on the payments to you. Um, Equivalently, uh, investors shouldn't agree to lower payments if the financial threatens to not collect on their behalf. It turns out the way to solve these problems is really for the financial to issue first-come, 1st serve demand deposits to investors. Okay. So what happens is, with this kind of structure, although the financial asset, that is the loan to the project, is illiquid because others can't collect the same amount that the financial can collect, claims on a bank which holds the project loans are much more liquid. And in other words, the same picture, when you have the project, the entrepreneur doing the project, the banker lending to the project, I'm calling him the banker now, Because he's structured like a bank, he's issued demand deposits. Note the one difference from the previous slide is that banker's rents that he absorbed on the way, which were 1 minus beta X2, go to zero. Why does it go to zero? Because when you have a bunch of depositors, all of which have a small claim, but it's a demandable claim, essentially you can drive the banker's rents that he absorbs on the way to zero, he will not be able to renegotiate those deposits down because he'll not be able to turn around to the lenders and say, look, you need, my, you need my help. Why don't you take a haircut in what I've promised you instead of taking uh, X2, take beta X2. He can't make that kind of speech anymore because they will run. Okay? So if the banker issues these demand deposits of face value X2 but threatens to re- renegotiate, the deposit claim has to be written uh, as if the depositors can either withdraw cash, or if he runs out of cash, sees sufficient bank loans to make whole the day to payment that they've been promised. In other words, this is standard uh, demandable debt. The problem is, because the market value of loans without the bank is beta X2, which is less than X2, only a fraction of the depositors will get their money back. So we have the traditional problem of bank run. Once I see enough people going for their money, I know that if I don't join that queue to get out my money, I'll be left with nothing, because the first set of people will get out their claim, but there's only beta x2 of, of, of uh, asset value in the bank to satisfy x2 worth of claims the bank has issued. Remember, anything taken out from the bank, which you're trying to enforce yourself, will get you only beta x2 in the market. So anyone who does not run to withdraw will get nothing, while those in the front of the line will come out whole. Now this is always thought of as a bug in the structure of banks. It is prone to runs because I know there's not enough value in the bank if everybody goes for their money at the same time. That means that any hint of the bank being in trouble, I run. And I'm arguing here it's not a bug, it's a feature of the bank. It's what makes the bank work. Because when we all run for the money, uh, for our money, it's a discipline on the bank. It says you can't uh, violate your promise. If you violate your promise, you're dead because everybody's going to come for their money. Now, there's, a, there's this last glitch here, which is a theoretical glitch, and bear with me. Even if the bank is run and all the depositors have pieces of the bank's assets with them, that's no guarantee that the banker is, is shut out of the system because after all he can say, look, you've got pieces of paper which allow you each to collect beta X2 divided by N from, the, from the, uh, their N depositors, beta X2 divided by N from the entrepreneur. Come to me. I will collect the full X2 by N from the, from the entrepreneur just Write your loans, write the pieces of paper that you've collected from me back to me, and I will collect it uh, for you. Turns out this kind of speech really uh, doesn't work, because once the bank has been disintermediated, uh, it's very hard for the bank to come back in between. Uh, Because once the loans are in the hands of depositors, Essentially, and this is where we get into theory, but bear with me. I'll, I'll tell you what this means more generally. Once the loans are in the hands of depositors, they can negotiate directly with the entrepreneur. And essentially, the entrepreneur can offer the depositors whatever they could get if they hired the bankers later. He can say, look, tell me what that guy's going to get you. Is he going to get you X2? Okay, I'll pay you X2. That's the extreme. But is he going to get you beta X2 plus a little more? Let me pay you that. Essentially... Uh, you can get two people to negotiate together with no need for that third party, the banker, because all he was doing is that he was taking from the entrepreneur and giving it to the depositors earlier. He was performing a transfer. Once the loan is made, all he's good for is performing the transfer. He's not adding any value. The value was upfront in essentially evaluating the loan and adding value at that point, Once he's out of the picture, he's no longer needed. And so depositors know that they'll get the same amount, even if they hire the banker. So once he's disintermediated, they're happy to agree to any solution the entrepreneur proposes. Here, take beta X2 by N plus a little bit more, cut that guy out, don't talk to that guy again, and tear up whatever claims you have on me. They're happy to do that, bankers effectively cannot reintermediate themselves once they suffer a run. So bankers do not benefit from bank runs. They essentially get cut out of the picture. That's why it's disciplinary, because they no longer have any power to intermediate. So exposed, uh, the banker doesn't, because the banker doesn't add any value, disintermediation is not inefficient. It just shifts the rents, and uh, shifts them away from the banker. So this is the aftermath of a run. An unhappy, disintermediated banker sits outside. He's trying to get back in, but nobody cares for him because they can do a deal directly with the entrepreneur, and that deal shuts out the, the banker. So the demand deposit has a special bite in banks that it doesn't have in an entrepreneurial firm because not only is it useful... Uh, to extract cash from the bank, but because it completely transfers the rent from the banker, the banker knows any time he threatens to essentially change the terms on the depositors, he can get disintermediated. The run is not only something that is precipitated by his attempt to renegotiate, it also completely shuts down his rents. This also explains why firm runs are not effective. Okay? Firm runs, think of a firm, uh, the entrepreneur issuing demandable debt directly to these guys. What What if he issues demandable debt to these guys? Can they collect C2 from him? Remember, he generates C2. Can they collect C2 by the threat of a run? And the answer is no. Why is the answer no? Because as soon as they run on him and they have pieces of paper which say, you promised to pay us some amount, he's going to say, well, that's okay, but I'm still needed to run the firm. I'm still needed to generate that value of C2, right? That because he has real value going forward, that threat of the run is incredible. They sort of, is not credible. They sort of come pick up the pieces of paper, and he says, okay, but you still need me. In order for me to work for you, I want that rent which I had earlier. Otherwise, I won't work, and there's nobody for them to negotiate with, unlike with the banker. They can't. They, you know, once the entrepreneur decides not to perform, that's it. They held up. In in other words, uh, what the difference between a bank, a financial intermediary, and a firm, is that the firm, as a going concern, generates value, ge- generates productive value. The bank, once it has a portfolio of assets is essentially a transfer agent moving, collecting from that portfolio and paying to the depositors. The depositors don't really care once they run on the bank whether the bank is going to generate a whole lot of value in the future. They care about getting their money back from the assets. And for that, they no longer need the banker. At that point, the banker shut out, which is why the the run works as a very strong disciplinary device. In other words, uh, this is the difference between Main Street and Wall Street. Uh, the financier, as an intermediary, can be cut out of the picture through, through runs. The Main Street, that is the entrepreneur, cannot be cut out. There's also uh, you know, two different uh, people. <laughs> uh, on the left, you have somebody who went through a bankruptcy. That's uh, Dick Fould, who went through the Lehman bankruptcy. And you can see a very angry Dick Fuld uh, uh, testifying before Congress. And on the right is an unnamed entrepreneur uh, <laughs> who has been through a number of bankruptcies but occupies an exalted position at this point. Uh, that's the difference between banker failure and entrepreneur failure. Uh, in, with an entrepreneur failure, you live, to, you live, to, uh, you live for another day because you can renegotiate with your lenders, you can renegotiate them down, and uh, you, know, you can continue with your wealth, the banker essentially is, is terminated on the day the run starts. Um, Lehman ran out of capital. Uh, almost to the day it ran out of capital, it, it faced a bank run. So um, the point here is that banks optimally choose a fragile capital structure to make, make illiquid financial assets liquid and essentially they can they can use this really hard financial asset that they issue to repay those who need it because they can borrow fully against their financial assets whenever needed so if somebody comes for their money because i can promise to pay somebody else who lends me the full value of their claims i can repay anybody who comes for their money i become essentially the guy who provides liquidity on all sides because my claim is my uh, claim that i will repay is essentially a very hard claim. I'm really good for my money, because the moment I violate your trust and stop repaying the deposit, I suffer that run, which closes me down. Now, there's a a related paper by Calamaris and Khan, very good paper in the AER in 1990, uh, which essentially focuses on demand deposits providing discipline. That is, they they essentially stop a crime in progress. Our paper has that notion that demand deposits will stop uh, crimes in progress because depositors will will panic and run on uh, on that basis. But the Calderas and Kahn notion doesn't explain why firms don't issue demand deposits then, because they could generate low-cost financing by doing that. And we need a model of our kind to show why that demand deposit is, in fact, disciplinary, why the banker cannot turn around to the demand depositors and say, sorry, let's renegotiate. In fact, he's cut out, while the entrepreneur can turn around and say, let's renegotiate. So uh, this uh, notion that it stops crimes in progress applies uh, uh, equally to firms. We don't see firms issuing demand deposits. So the notion that we bring to the table that it also creates commitment because financial intermediaries can create commitment which, which firms cannot Uh, applies more to banks and in that sense uh, you see a different outcome. So in our paper banks add value up front by making cheap financing possible and exposed by making these loans effective collateral against which to borrow which allows them to provide liquidity to all their depositors. If they come for their money they can always find somebody else to lend to pay these guys back. So it stitches the human capital of bankers to the loan in a way that the entrepreneur cannot stitch his human capital to the uh, loan that he gets. Um, So why is this ineffective for other financial firms? Why is it that we can't make the same kind of argument for venture capitalists? After all, venture capitalists are not financed with demand deposits. And here, again, the idea behind the model can be applied to say, look, venture capitalists don't make the loan and forget about the firm. They continue to add value to to firms by providing advice, consulting, uh, management support, corporate governance. Uh, often, they're there to hold the hands of the entrepreneur who started out in a garage. Um, so, venture capitalists add value to these startups. So, they're not simply more effective collection agents as the bank is in our in our in our model. They actually add value to the venture that they they invest in. So because uh, they add value, demand deposits would be ineffective in disciplining them much as demand deposits are ineffective in disciplining the the entrepreneur. So venture capitalists would finance with longer-term finance, wouldn't issue demand deposits, doesn't work for them. Um, The notion of banks creating liquidity is really about bankers adding more value than the market value of the uh, uh, of the loans that they made, those loans in the market have lo- value beta x2, but the value that banks can borrow is x2. I think this also helps us distinguish money market funds from banks. Money market funds essentially hold liquid securities, which have a liquid value in the market of beta x2. You can sell them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but they don't add any additional value because any of their of their capabilities to that beta x2 that those securities trade for in the market. Essentially, any investor has a claim on one nth of the asset value of the money market, and that's passed on passively. The money market doesn't add any additional value to the market value of those assets. The bank effectively adds value to the market value of the illiquid assets that it holds, which is why it's a different creature from the money market fund. So money markets cannot create liquidity in excess of market value. All the liquidity you experience with a money market is what is passed through because it holds liquid securities. It's not making them more liquid than that. On the other hand, a bank holds those illiquid securities that nobody could actually trade in the market but allows depositors to basically get their money back anytime. That's the liquidity that the banks add and this notion of stitching their human capital To the loan is critical in making this liquidity work. So in sum, uh, banks create liquidity and reduce the risk that borrowers might be liquidated. There are two related notions of, of liquidity here, both of which are at work. One is the banks can commit to pass on value to the depositors, and second, as a result, they can give immediacy to those depositors. So deposits then become really hard claims which can circulate, right? you can write checks on them, and those checks can circulate as money, um, and uh, this is really the nature of the bank. These are much more liquid than the direct loans because the intermediary, which is his human capital, provides more reliable sources of funding than the markets because the markets can get worried about the entrepreneur and liquidate him early, the banker will stay with the entrepreneur. Um, It can allow uh, risky entrepreneurs to raise more funds at a lower liquidity premium. And this is where the notion that somehow you can convert banks to safe institutions by forcing them to raise long-term capital, forcing them to issue much more capital or long-term debt, is something that we have to ask a question about. Because if demand deposits are so important in serving as a commitment device, then forcing the banks to issue capital instead of deposits will essentially raise their cost of financing. And that's where, to some extent, the the second paper comes in, and I'll go quickly through it so we have more time for questions. Um, You know, this, this notion that financing banks with more capital has a cost is something the first paper makes talk because it's a model of certainty, there are no risks, Uh, nothing can go wrong with the loan. It's just a question of collecting the loan and passing on the value to the depositors. But of course we know that's not the real world. Real world banks hold risky assets. And of course, if downside risk materializes, the bank might find that the asset, instead of paying X2, is paying uh, some fraction or maybe even zero. And if every time a bank's asset value fluctuates, it's loaded up with so much debt that depositors get antsy and run, then, you know, you wouldn't have a bank for very long because the world is uncertain. There is a lot of uncertainty. You need a buffer to absorb some of the risks associated with banks. And that's where we get a theory of bank capital. Uh, what if bank loans are risky? A bank that issues only demand deposits and has no capital uh, has issued no, no equity, uh, basically would be prone to solvency-induced runs. Anybody is scared about the bank solvency would run immediately, and too many projects would be liquidated because the bank would not be able to service its demand deposits. So there is a trade-off here. You need to buffer deposits with softer, potentially renegotiable claims like bank capital, but those softer claims also provide a valuable function, which is they absorb some of the volatility in the bank's asset value so that the bank is not run at every instant. More capital, the safer the bank, the less it's run. So that's certainly in accordance with people who say banks should have more, issue more capital. It does make them safer, but it doesn't come without cost because the safer you make them, the less of these demandable deposits you've issued, and the more the rents, in a sense, the bank can absorb. And so, uh, more capital means the bank less risky, but the bank absorbs more rents and creates less liquidity, you have to balance the two. And you have to choose an optimal level of capital that in fact trades off these these factors. Now, uh, I mean, this leads to a broader uh, question of what is our theory of bank capital? Whenever you talk, see the regulatory discussion, sometimes there is a certain amount of belief that if you force the bank to issue more equity, uh, the banker will behave uh, in a more circumspect fashion because if they take on too much risk, the equity will get hit. There's a notion somehow that the equity holders will take more care looking after the banker's actions and preventing wild lending reality is, in, in in many situations, equity holders are even less informed than depositors. Uh, many of these banks, uh, before the financial crisis, had bank boards that had luminaries, uh, great in the field of arts and science and so on, but that didn't wouldn't know a credit default swap if you showed it to them. Uh, they weren't practiced in, in, in finance, and so the notion that somehow as guardians of all that equity the bank had issued, they were very good, uh, I think that's a debatable proposition, that these boards weren't particularly effective at control, even though some amounts of equity were at stake. Uh, it's also not clear that uh, the banker himself, in, in, in Holmstrom and Tyrol, that many of you may have read, it's a classic paper, uh, in Holmes and Tyrol's view of the banks, the uh, bank's... Capital is the inside claim. Bankers hold the capital. It's like bankers own a residual claim on the firm, and they want to stay on the straight and narrow because their own claim on the firm will be at risk if they take on too much risk. This is a classic prevention of moral hazard by having skin in the game. Well, it turns out, few of the bankers had a a large enough stake in the banks uh, before the financial crisis uh, that, in fact, it performed this role. Uh, Which then leads to the question, what is the role in large uh, multinational banks that capital might provide? What role might it play? And I think our sense of that role is largely it's a buffer. It's a buffer which prevents small shocks from taking the bank down. But if there are large shocks, the bank goes down. The problem is if you have too much of a buffer, the demandable debt works much less well as a disciplinary device. Final point is on Lehman. Uh, You know, isn't Lehman a demonstration of the failure of the kinds of issues we're talking about in this paper? And I I would argue the answer is no. Uh, In fact, uh, um, um, you know, according to a paper which details the capital of Lehman, essentially Lehman was run the moment the market value of its capital went close to zero, which is precisely the point in our model the bank is run. So what role did capital play? It served as a buffer. It wasn't a controlling device. Lehman's directors didn't quite know what the, what the bankers were doing. Uh, bankers didn't own much of that, that residual claim, uh, uh, didn't own a significant portion of the equity of Lehman. What it did perform was a role of a buffer. It prevented Lehman from failing until the value of Lehman was so eroded that effectively there was no equity left that's precisely when the runs really took off on lehman runs not uh, of course lehman wasn't a bank it was an investment bank but it was financed in a bank like way with significant runnable short term debt and that 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 debt ran and essentially closed lehman down so the implication is in in all this is bank capital does provide a buffer but it is costly it is costly not because of asymmetric information because but because as the bank builds more of this buffer, it is less subject to the discipline of the market, and essentially bankers can run longer without paying the price for some of their frailties. And that does elevate the cost of, of financing. It's not without cost. There is a larger societal benefit. So I'm not saying that zero capital is the way to run banks. I think there's an optimal level of capital. I think we were too low before the financial crisis. Raising it is a, is a good idea but raising it to 100% is probably a bad idea. There's some way in between which makes sense for the banks given the function they perform. So that's pretty much what, uh, what I wanted to say on banks, and I'm now happy to take all your questions.
0: Very good. Thank you very much for the inspiring lecture. Um, like I said, I will now take questions from the audience, so if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up, and I'll try to call on three or four of you and then um, move on to the next stage. So let me ask, start with a gentleman over there. Um, there's a microphone going around. Put your hand up so I see you later. Hello.
3: Um, in order to match liabilities and assets, why don't you make banks take longer-term liabilities? Not necessarily 20-year liability, but five-year liability to match with insurance companies. Why is it so inclined to take demand deposit rather than other form of liabilities? And make obviously liability have a longer maturity, slightly longer maturity than the average asset.
0: The lady there in the back. Um,
4: Good evening. I was uh, particularly perturbed by your entire uh, narrative on the banking system, which actually brought me to a question. Um, in your book, The Fault Lines, you had identified one of the fault lines that precipitated the 20, uh, the 2008 crisis as um, the increasing inequalities and the, rem- and the rising demand for credit. Um, a decade later now, in 2019, uh, do you feel that these fault lines still exist or have they grown more stronger, or have we developed new fault lines altogether? And what would these be?
0: Someone here earlier. Oh, there you go. <coughs> One over there. With glasses. I'll go upstairs on the next round. Don't worry.
2: Good evening, sir. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sir. Can oh. I just
0: please just say your name and your affiliation? Makes it a little easier for you sure. kind Good of. Good evening,
2: sir. I'm Siddharth, and I'm studying financial engineering at uh, Imperial College. So my question is like if uh, in your first paper you mentioned that if depositors have lesser knowledge as compared to banks when they are, uh, when they are lending to entrepreneurs, so how do they, de- how do if, the, if there's a, a case where the uh, uh, depositors are directly interacting with the entrepreneurs, how do they ensure that the optimal X2 is recovered and not that beta can be increased? The
0: final question for this round for the gentleman here in the corner.
2: Hi, it's Ali. I I work at Bank of America, actually. Um, It's a very informative uh,
0: discussion. Just at a high level in terms of the current state of the policy discourse, much of the discussion for capital seems to be in terms of raising capital levels, um, looking at market risk and other types of risks. How do regulators take your point in terms of, you know, how much capital is enough? What do people think about that? (coughs)
2: Yeah, uh, let me go through this. Um, I, I, so, so one, uh, let me take the, the two uh, capital-related questions. Why not long-term liabilities, uh, five years uh, maybe, and, and how much capital is now? Now, in this kind of model, uh, anything that is long-term looks very similar. So uh, long-term debt looks a lot like long-term equity. Uh, or indefinite period equity, because the real issue is uh, how much of a sway you can have in terms of absorbing rents uh, from those investors, And the less they are demandable, uh, the less you create the, the sense of discipline on the, on, the, on the bank. Essentially, you give them a longer rope. If you issue a five-year liability, it it is five years of rope that you give them. With equity, it's an indefinite rope, and so in that sense, uh, that tends to get costlier and costlier uh, the longer term that it is. Um, I think this debate on how much capital is is one that is has become politicized, because there's a very large group of people who think the banks have borne no punishment and so let's punish them by requiring much more capital. Now, and there are a bunch of academics who are on the side. I I have no doubt that we need more capital, they need more capital than they had before the financial crisis. But uh, when regulators and bankers sort of say, look, there's another side to this, and they will say that there's a cost of capital that, that increases, uh, some of the academics cite Modigliani and Miller and say, look, capital structure doesn't matter. You're talking through your hat. And unfortunately, some of the examples bankers give uh, suggest they don't understand Modigliani-Miller. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is that capital structure within the banks plays a role. And uh, that's why Lehman got shut the day it effectively went bankrupt rather than six months later when it had eroded much more in terms of asset value. And and so in that sense, I think we need to move the debate to a plane where it's not so much, you know, uh, are you you talking nonsense, but uh, can we actually agree that there is a cost of capital for the banks, uh, which increases in the amount of capital that they hold, and we as a society decide how safe we want them to be. Making them fully safe comes at a cost to society in the sense of having the wrong kind of capital structure for making cheaper loans. Uh, if you want cheaper loans, and this is the, the dichotomy in a sense post-financial crisis when we insisted on piling on more regulations, some of which were really necessary for the banks, but at the same time wanted more activity. And we saw the banks weren't lending, and we didn't note that there might be. I'm not saying there was. There might be a connection between the two. So let's be careful about how much we want to pile up There is undoubtedly an optimal level of capital. It's hard to determine that, but at least we should try. And let's not say it's 100%. Let's not say it's zero. It's somewhere in between. Uh, On the uh, uh, fault lines, uh, what fault lines do I see? Well, I mean, in a sense, the underlying problems existed before the crisis and haven't yet been solved. The issue of the middle class not benefiting from growth of uh, growing communities being being sidelined and not participating. And in fault lines, I said easy credit might have been one answer, but it was the wrong answer. Uh, I think since the crisis, we've had very easy monetary policy, again, an attempt to revive activity. But I do find it worrisome that any hint of normalization tends to set back activity uh, considerably. That means that you know something is there's a malaise i think uh, uh, larry summers would say secular stagnation there are other views of it but something is not working which which uh, by which we need extreme degrees of monetary accommodation for the economy to chug along at a pace that is tolerable and i think uh, we need to rectify that uh, i have my views on what we need to do but but certainly it seems to me that's still a concern. Lastly, on the technical question, don't depositors need more information? The beauty of this is they need more information except to understand when the banker is holding them up. Put differently, all they need to do is see whether a queue is forming in front of the bank. If a queue is forming, they join the queue. That's the disciplinary device. That's the entire device. And in a sense, in medieval, uh, in medieval Italy, uh, the banker had a book uh, because we didn't have you know, electronic contracts and so on. And in that book, he wrote down how much he owed you. And if it came for my money, he had to pay it. If he couldn't pay it, that was a signal to the entire market that he was in trouble. And, you know, everything was written down carefully. You couldn't erase anything because the moment the ink hit the paper, that was, that was it. That was your claim. So I think there's a structure here that puts the pressure on the banker, Uh, It doesn't require much information. It's just market-wide news. Is the banker good for his money? Because Joe went to get his money back, and he was paid. So long as Joe, Jill, John get paid, that's fine. I don't need to worry about it. The moment he says, I can't pay you, that's when the run starts.
0: Very good. So let's go upstairs. I'm going to start with the gentleman there on the very end with a striped sweater. Hi, uh, good evening and thank you for your presentation. Um, Now my question to you is on on capital adequacy requirements. Uh, Some of the literature I've read um, seems to agree with the current uh, percentage on that. Um, From what I've got from your lecture, you said that um, it's a costly exercise for for some institutions. And I just wanted to find out from you, what is the fair trade-off at the moment for capital adequacy requirements? So no, there's no uniform position. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm Sorry,
2: you. I'm taking the question.
0: The lady here in the front? Right, yeah, the one in... Yeah, you. <laughs> okay.
1: Hello, I'm Trinaini. My question is, uh, when you talked about uh, inflicting bank runs, the investors are questioning banks' ability to pay back. So how far do you think when a government itself is inflicting information to the investors that there might not be adequate cash in the bank to pay you back. Uh, so how far do you think the government is inflicting a bank run in the situation? Like, for example, in the demonetization uh, in India, the, <laughs> uh, the government itself inflicted an information regarding the inadequacy of the bank to pay back. So do you think that kind of, you know, uh, you know, like it increased the, ability, uh, increased the possibility of a bank run. Yeah.
0: Gentleman in green over there. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm an undergraduate accounting and finance student. Um, so since banks are currently embracing cryptocurrency, assuming that this, ba- uh, this becomes a much more pivotal and prime <coughs> currency, how do you think this would affect the thinking behind the optimal capital level, considering that crypto values always are changing? Find the lady in red over
4: here. Hi, uh, I'm also an accounting and finance student and both of my questions are macroeconomy based. Uh, So when you said that uh, direct financing between the depositor and the entrepreneur does not work because the entrepreneur is in a position to renegotiate uh, bills uh, i also see that the in the current scenario the bank is also renegotiating terms with the entrepreneurs so if it's the depositor not renegotiating the terms it's the bank renegotiating the terms and bank is taking uh, less profitability and trade offs as a result of the renegotiation that happens between banks and the depositors. So do you think that from a macroeconomic perspective, the bank taking the volatility shock is better than the investor taking it directly? That is the first question. And the second question is about uh, when you started, you talked about how uh, people are questioning the existence of banks. Uh, what What I want to ask is that isn't asking that question isn't asking doesn't asking that question makes no sense because uh, apart from being a financial intermediary, the bank is also playing a service provider role, without which an economy will not function at all. Thank you. Okay.
2: Um, on the issue of capital adequacy, the uh, truth is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's fair amount of empirical work being done to try and determine what that is, but I, I think it has to start with a model of what role banks provide and then go on to see what, what capital adequacy might be. And, you know, if you don't start with that, then you either get hit with Modigliani-Miller, it shouldn't matter, or you, uh, you basically run a cross-sectional regression and see where values speak out, which is not particularly a a good thing. So the answer to your point, what should be the optimal level of capital, I think uh, we're still sort of debating it and and I don't know what the, I mean, I'd say at this point uh, Basel has fixed a level, we should see how that works and if we find that it is too constraining maybe we can look at it, but at this point we should go with what has been negotiated over a number of years and see whether that needs change. Uh, I think we're, uh, there is some value to regulations being somewhat uh, durable rather than we change it every time there's a, there's a whim and a fancy. So I, I would test it out, see what work, how it works relative to the past, and then decide whether we need more or less. Um, on the demonetization in India, as well as cryptocurrency, I'm not sure I have a... I mean, demonetization in India did a lot of bad things, but I don't think it, it created a bank run. Uh, uh, and I, I don't think it was meant to do that. I, I think, in fact, it brought money into the banking system. A whole lot of new deposits came out, were flushed out, and came back as currency into the banking system. So in that sense, I think it was far from from creating any run-like situation. And uh, um, I, I think one could debate the growth effects of demonetization. Uh, but but I don't think it weakened the banking system in that fashion. It did make the bankers spend a lot of time changing currency, uh, and <laughs> that certainly was one of the costs we, we, we ignore. Um, on the issue of cryptocurrency, I, I mean, I, I, I think right now banks are not engaged in it. Um, it is an interesting concept. I, I think it's still looking for a killer application. And I have no doubt at some point we'll figure out what that killer application is. But at this point, uh, the best application seems to be uh, at some level, and I don't want to again say this too loudly, but some level seems to be illegal transactions. And I can't see that as a long-term uh, sort of proposition that the authorities will permit. So it has to find something else to... F- to, to uh, uh, to do, and i have no doubt that some of these smart contracts, etc, will provide that that uh, that new hook that this is different from traditional currency, but it is something that uh, will have to be thought out uh, finally um, you know I look uh, theory is always about stripping down to the essentials, uh, and yeah, banks provide a variety of services they even You know, community banks provide a uh, a locale where people can congregate and get the teller to chat with them every day. Uh, Sometimes translate in the U.S., translate some of the documents which come from home, uh, from Spanish into English. So they provide a lot of functions. I'm not saying those functions are irrelevant and I'm in no way saying banks should be done away with. Uh, in fact quite the opposite Uh, but I want to focus on the key function that is they're supposed to have provided through history and our attempt to eliminate the risk associated with that function. I'm saying beware that as you eliminate that risk you also eliminate the efficacy of that function and make the trade-off. That there is a trade-off to be made, it's not unidirectional. I I have here banks renegotiating with the entrepreneur I, I forget what the um, what well the question there was?
4: Uh, what I meant to ask was that when banks renegotiate the contracts with the entrepreneur, they are also giving up on some amount oh, of I, profits. Oh, I hear you.
2: So I, I think you have in mind somehow the the notion that when a debt is in, uh, not collectible. Uh, banks sometimes write down the value of debt. And certainly this is happening in India with the, uh, the renegotiations over the projects that have gone bust. And that has to do with something outside this model, which is more the fact that when there is uncollectible debt, part of the function of the bank is to determine how much can be serviced without creating bad incentives for the entrepreneur. Uh, there's some, a notion of debt overhang. I don't know if you've done this in class. But when there is a debt overhang, it makes sense for all parties to renegotiate the debt down to a value which, in fact, will be fully repaid. If I have $100 of debt that you owe, but I know you're going to do really uh, bad things if you owe that $100 because you don't have any equity in the project, uh, then it may make sense for me to write down the value of the debt to $80 because that $80 is fully collectible, while if you owe $100 you may actually reduce the value to 50 or 40 uh, and leave nothing uh, much for me. So that's the notion in which writing down the value of debt to a level which is reasonable makes sense. The banker has to think how much that is. That's part of the valuable function they perform. In India, for example, some of these projects are so heavily indebted, there's no hope of ever repaying that money. At that point, it makes sense to ask, well, if I write down the debt sum, Will I give the entrepreneur some incentive to complete the project because he has a little bit of skin in the game? And giving that incentive may be better than holding on to this debt which nobody's ever going to pay.
0: Very good. The gentleman in the red checkered shirt here.
3: Hi, my name is Mangesh. I'm working
2: in the financial sector for eight years, So my I have two questions. So what's your view uh, on the bank regulation for the Fed cash errors? That's a, the that's a tax information. So when customer or the existing customer on, or newly customer, what's bank can do so that it will be easier for customers existing and on, uh, newly onboarded? Uh, as well as for the KYC automation, uh, how it will be easier for banks uh, to attract more customers so it will be they can do, uh, they can do their services uh, very easily. And, as the, and second question is, as the elections dates are announced, what's your view on, on the waving of farmer uh, former loans and how it will affect the economy
1: as well as what bank can prepare for that as well? Thank you.
0: You can pass the microphone here. The second, no, in front, yeah.
3: Raghu thank you. Your, your general point, which is that the, this traditional capital structure of banks with illiquid assets but short-term runnable liabilities has some economic value, seems to me eminently sensible because we've had these institutions for hundreds of years and if they had no value, it's unlikely they would have survived. But then it seems to me what that raises is the question of why so many people have tried to make the banks safer in some sense. And the bit you didn't talk about was the role of bank deposits as a means of payment, the payment system. And if you have institutions where runs could easily occur, then as a depositor, I need to monitor not just whether there's a run starting outside my bank, but any other bank that might be involved in the payment system. Could you say a word about how the payment system fits into your framework? The lady here in the front.
1: Uh, Good evening, sir. It's a great honor to speak speak to you. I'm Sunaina Parvati. I'm taking, uh, I'm doing the masters here at LSE. Uh, My question is, uh, in the wake of the non-banking financial company crisis that hit the automobile industry in India, uh, do you think India needs a new design uh, of finance? And uh, what would your uh, recommendations for prudential policies be uh, if if you had to take a take on it? Thank you.
0: Gentleman in white there in the middle.
2: Good evening, sir. My name is Vikram. I'm studying management at LSE. Uh, My question is uh, particularly related to the Indian market. Uh, Presently, we're seeing, like, there's a stress in the liquidity of the Indian banking sector, and uh, the inflation is at an all-time low, like, close to 2%, and the growth has been pegged down to below 7% as well. So do you think, and the bankers have been putting pressure on the RBI to increase the liquidity. Do you think, like, is that the right thing to do? And what do you think are, like, the proper steps that need to be taken in the future.
0: Okay. Finally, this gentleman here in the corner, in the front, before we stop this round. Hi, um, I'm Alex. I study um, economic history here at the LSE. Um, I'm an undergrad. You mentioned monetary policy briefly before, and I was wondering if you could expand on what action you think is needed to rectify the over-reliance on expansive monetary policy to sustain activity, um, particularly seeing as the responsiveness to traditional monetary policy seems to be diminishing.
2: Okay. Um, let me um, – uh, lots of questions. Uh, some of these are obviously only peripherally related to what I spoke about. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll, 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 I'll try and be brief, but, but uh, I will answer them. Uh, on KYC norms, I think uh, certainly that is an issue: whether we've effect- created effective norms which keep out the, the terrorist element and the criminal element, or whether we've created a bureaucratic structure that uh, keeps out nobody who actually wants to get around them, but serves as a source of harassment for the for the average uh, investor. And I think that debate keeps keeps going on. Uh, let's find easier ways of doing KYC uh, while keeping the spirit of KYC, that we want to keep the banking system uh, relatively safe from misuse. Uh, So that's the ongoing, I mean, where exactly, what exactly we do. I think as information technology gets better, there might be ways of doing it in a much less uh, sort of problematic way for people. Uh, And, uh, you know, like we have the um, what's it? The uh, frequent flyer sort of in, in the U.S. You have this frequent traveler notion that once they've done it, wherever you go, you get that that uh, that appellation. Uh, we have to find ways of doing KYC in a way that's portable, easy, doesn't have to be done every six weeks, and that uh, you know banks use that, but use a lot more. Uh, in the nature of transactions that you do and so on to monitor for suspicious activities. They don't sort of do that and feel a bureaucratic duty is done and stop there. Uh, on the Indian elections and farmer loan waivers, I mean, the, the reality is there's a lot of agricultural distress in India. And the easiest thing that uh, that parties have found, parties on all sides of the spectrum, is to waive farmer loans uh, of course, at the point where you waive farmer loans, the distress is already embedded, and it's a question of immediacy. The issue with farmer loans is how well-targeted are they because you know, the poorest f- farmers and the agricultural laborers don't get loans. And so when you waive them, it's a transfer to at least the upper tier of farmers who may not also be particularly well-off. And so going forward, we really need to find better ways which uh, which don't destroy credit discipline. One of the findings that every study I've seen is once you do a waiver, lending to, that, to the agricultural sector drops in that state. So we have to find ways that are more sort of farmer friendly, and ultimately it's about how do we invest in agriculture to make agricultural growth stronger. Mervyn's um, uh, question on, on, on deposits as a means of payment is, is spot on and And I do think this is where the dual role comes in. The fact that those claims on the bank are rock solid uh, they uh, the bank can 't afford to uh, you know uh, try and uh, do any hanky panky with them makes them a very effective means of payment, but that also creates the fragility, which is why once you think about the means of payment, I think your, your sense that you would require more capital is absolutely right. That's yet another function they perform. And to keep those, you want a little more capital, but not so much that those means of payment can no longer be relied on because these guys are pretty happy that they will avoid any discipline if they renege. And uh, you know, one of the most interesting studies I've seen in banking, which, which uh, you've seen is, is how these deposits uh, in the free banking era... Uh, reflected the views, uh, especially the more distant the means of payment was from the bank, the more discounted it was because it would take a longer time to travel to the bank and be presented. So there is a sense in which, you know, uh, having that discipline, being close to the bank, being uh, nearby, may make it a stronger means of payment, much closer to face value also. And uh, this is a part of the trade-off. I think that that is very important that you've uh, you've 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 Drawn attention to, you know, a couple of other questions on NBFCs and liquidity in the banking sector in India. I, I sort of refrain from commenting on on current uh, situation as far as monetary related issues in India goes, and I think I'll continue with that.
0: Okay, last round of questions. Well, the lady there with her hand up? You know.
4: Hello. Um, hi. Um, thank you so much for coming to LSE today. So my name is Bhumika and I work in a bank. Um, this um, question is more specific to the capital structure that regulators have put in, uh, especially in Europe. So now there are these sort of bonds which are a part equity and a part uh, debt that the, a lot of insurers in Europe are required to issue. And these are really expensive instruments for a lot of, especially the second-tier banks, like you could be looking at paying 10 or 11 percent interest rates. So what do you think? That is it still, into, uh, in the sense, gives them a longer rope when they're paying such a high coupon, especially the smaller banks who may not be that leveled up and that indulging in that risky activities. Thank you. And the
0: lady there in the middle in grey.
4: Hello. Thanks very much for your talk. Uh, I'm Padmasai. I work in an industry organization for stock exchanges. Uh, You just mentioned some while ago that uh, today we see a lot of easy monetary policy in the world, and even a hint of normalization sort of creates a lot of problems. So, I mean, and you said, like, you have some views on how this can be rectified. What are your views on how, like, is there a way you can get that monetary policy can get out of this vicious cycle? Uh, I'd like to hear your views.
2: Thanks.
0: Gentleman here in the front, please. No, one of the two of you <laughs> don 't know which one of you <laughs> you pick
2: <laughs> Good evening, sir. I am uh, from State Bank of India. Uh, from your question your uh, lecture on how do we motivate demand deposits and trade-off between demand deposits and capital, so can we include uh, uh, can we include in the capital calculation a factor for demand deposits for example demand deposit basically you, we look at more truth the lens of liquidity, can liquidity be incorporated for capital calculation in one way, and whether rule-based regulation is better or uh, principle-based regulation.
0: And finally, the last two questions, there are the two in the corner, both the lady and the gentleman there waving. And then I will remind you that after this we have reception outside, so you can ask many more questions of Roger. Hi, I'm Badr Barguti. Currently doing my masters in finance at King's College London. And simply, I have a quick uh, question. So during the financial uh, global financial crisis back in 2008, a lot of banks actually didn't meet the obligation to demand deposit holders due to poor lending, like subprime mortgages and liquidity problems, which actually opposes the concept of risk-free rate of return in banks. However, we haven't seen for the past 10 years after the crisis, banks actually providing investors with the risk premiums as uh, there is a high volatility even if my money is deposited in the bank. So what's your uh, point of view on this matter? Thank you.
1: Hi. uh, My question is mainly on the asset side. We talk a lot about liabilities and asset liability mismatch. But why is there not a lot of focus on the quality of asset portfolio, which is basically the entrepreneur here? Uh, why are banks not very careful when they basically lend to them? So yeah, just wanted to know your thoughts on that.
2: OK. Um, uh, first question was on monetary policy. What are my my views? Uh, I think there was an earlier question also, which I didn't answer last time because it was on the next page. <laughs> I didn't see it. Uh, look. I, I, I sort of believe that monetary policy has pretty much done what it could. It has maintained low interest rates for a long period. Uh, there have been uh, even a variety of experiments on quantitative easing. I, I think the certain forms of quantitative easing were very useful in repairing markets when it went beyond that. It's not clear how much uh, positive effect they had. But But I think... Uh, in, in general, monetary uh, authorities have done what they could. Uh, at this point, if you want to elevate growth, they have to look elsewhere. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, uh, is, uh, is very important. Uh, I think it's particularly important because now we're getting all sorts of theories coming out of the woodwork, uh, which basically say that since you have uh, had, you know, we don't see inflation around the corner... Uh, why don't you you print money to finance all sorts of fun things that we have in mind for you? And I think we're getting to the point where not only do we think monetary policy has no effect, positive, but now we're saying, you know, print as much money as you can and it will have no negative effects. And and I think we are, I think, at a point where we should step back and say, thus far and no more. Um, The argument about convertible bonds, uh, I I presume this is... uh, these are those bonds which convert when equity falls below a certain value. Uh, actually, Jeremy Stein, Anil Kashyap, and I proposed that, amongst, uh, along with a bunch of others uh, long back. The, the, when you look at the expense, uh, certainly it seems very expensive relative to short-term debt, but it's meant to be an, a buffer, meant to absorb risk, and the alternative you should be comparing with is really equity. Uh, would I issue this or would I issue equity? And banks have the choice of doing either. And they tend to say, okay, I'll issue this because it's preferable. And typically at the times that the bank issue it, it's, it they issue it at times when it's relatively cheaper because investors are not so worried about the risk of banks. Um, on the uh, you know notion of whether capital can be calculated by some kind of... Uh, Uh, liquidity measures and so on. Yes, I mean, that's part of, uh, but whether that's the optimal level, I think is something we need to to think about. On the broader issue of rule-based versus principle-based, I think we're still debating that. Uh, uh, I think the broader point is that we want a level playing field, regardless of what kind of uh, of, um, sort of institution you are, uh, which is why rule-based, which are arbitrage, becomes problematic because different kind of institutions can get around them. At the same time, principle-based may be written so broadly that it's it's hard to essentially uh, figure out when to when to catch. Uh, so I think it's it's ongoing. We're we're sort of trying to figure out what what. Uh, uh, and finally, you know, the fact that this bank demand deposit exercise. A disciplinary role doesn't mean that bankers won't do, uh, you know, terrible things, Uh, especially when there's an environment of, uh, in uh, uh, Chairman Greenspan's famous words, irrational exuberance. And um, how much liquidity contribute, prevailing liquidity contributes to that. We'll talk about tomorrow, but uh, but basically, bad things can happen. This is not a cast iron solution for all the bad bad stuff that bankers do.
0: Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much.